Nuestro país no lanza bombas contra otros pueblos. This is late Cuban leader Fidel Castro speaking in Argentina in 2004. What Castro is saying is that the only weapons Cuba will send to other countries are doctors, Cuban-trained doctors who will be needed in the darkest corners of the world. Doctors, not bombs, he says. That will be Cuba's contribution to the world. In April, Cuba's contribution to the world arrived in South Africa. 217 members of their medical brigade Doctors, healthcare specialists, and technicians sent here to help South Africa fight COVID-19. And the cost of these doctors allegedly amounts to almost half a billion rand, including huge amounts to be spent on salaries, accommodation, and so forth. That got a lot of people wondering what exactly was going on here, especially when it emerged that there were South African doctors and nurses who have been waiting in vain for positions in the public health system. Have these imported Cuban healthcare workers been sent to South Africa as an act of pure altruism from the Cuban regime to offer indispensable skills in tackling the current pandemic? Or do they amount to an unnecessary and irrational expense, which can best be explained as a favor from South Africa to Cuba rather than the other way around? Welcome to Don't Shoot the Messenger, the Daily Maverick podcast where we bring you the stories behind the stories. In this week's episode, we're tackling the curious case of the Cuban medical mission to South Africa, learning why Cuba lends its doctors to other countries in this way, and hearing from a certain group of South Africans who are particularly enraged by the COVID-19 Cuban deployment. I'm Rebecca Davis. Mark Keller is the lead analyst on Cuban affairs at the Economist Intelligence Unit. We called him up because we wanted to understand what's happening in Cuba currently as they send doctors all over the world. For those who need a quick refresher on the Cuban political system, it's a communist country, but over the last decade, some liberalizing reforms have allowed for the development of a very small private sector. But Cuba's communism has put it in the crosshairs of the USA since midway through the last century. Here's Mark. So because of the U.S. embargo and because of the political system, there are shortages. It's very difficult for Cuba to access things on the international market. Now, because it's a communist system, there are certain guarantees for all citizens, such as access to housing, access to health care. The quality of these things is not fantastic, pretty low quality there's a housing shortage. You know, a lot of families are crowded together. The health system suffers from shortages. But yeah, I mean, obviously, there's also not much inequality. So there's not very rich Cubans or very poor Cubans. Everyone sort of lives at a pretty low level, but basically equal. I spent a week in Cuba 10 years ago, split between the capital, Havana, and the beach resort of Varadero, I use the term beach resort quite loosely because tourism at that stage was still pretty embryonic. On the drive out to Varadero, I was struck by these massive billboards in the field saying things like, come on guys, we're doing really well. They were intended to motivate Cuban workers. But there was lots about Havana in particular that I really liked. The sense of an incredibly literate culture, books everywhere, and people making music and art way into the night. 
For the last few years, Cuba's been leaning heavily on its tourist industry to prop up its economy, especially since its major ally, Venezuela, has entered economic meltdown. And then, to make everything worse, COVID-19 hit the world. Since the political and economic collapse in Venezuela, a lot of that has become more unstable, harder to access, and you've seen less stable oil shipments to Cuba. And on top of that, we have U.S. sanctions. Obviously, Cuba has faced a U.S. embargo since 1960, which really curtails its access to the international market, to finance, to exports, investment. But since early 2019, there has been U.S. sanctions on Venezuela, which has worsened the situation there. And it's also made it more difficult for Venezuela to ship oil to Cuba. So we were, even before this pandemic, expecting the Cuban economy to shrink this year. Because of the pandemic, Cuba has been forced to close its borders to international tourists. Tourism is a big part of the economy and a huge supporter, especially of Cuba's very small private sector. And that's going to be catastrophic for the economy. We're predicting a sharp contraction of 8.3% this year. So a pretty bad situation domestically. So the pandemic strikes and Cuba's already flailing economy pretty much falls off a cliff. And the other thing that happens is that Cuba starts sending medical missions all over the world to help fight COVID-19 to at least 23 countries to date. This is a clip from an Al Jazeera report of Cuban doctors going off to treat COVID-19 in Italy in March. Of course I'm scared, but when we went to fight Ebola in West Africa in 2014, we were scared too, but we fulfilled our mission there and we all came back. What we're going to do is cure and bring relief not only to the Italian people, but the world's population. This is a global battle and we have to fight it together. Why are you going on this mission if you know that Cuban doctors have died on past missions? Because we are the Cuban people. This is Cuba. And we're always going to keep fighting. When we come back, the history of Cuba's medical missions and the price tag. Our podcast is only as good as you make it, so please rate us on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. So it's accepted as sort of a universal truth that Cuba has some of the best doctors and one of the best health systems out there. The World Bank says that Cuba has the highest number of doctors per capita in the world, and everyone in Cuba is guaranteed access to free healthcare, which is a really laudable situation. But because of the Cuban economic crisis, it means the reality on the ground is not quite as dreamy as one might hope. Doctors in Cuba make between 50 and 70 US dollars a month. So that's at most about 1,300 rand a month. And within hospitals and clinics, there's often a shortage of even basic supplies. Here's Cuban blogger Yoni Sanchez discussing Cuba's healthcare system in 2017 at the University of Miami. Our producer Haji is reading the translation. The problem is that many of those professionals know and are fully aware of the fact that they are completely underappreciated in terms of salary. It is known that this doctor doesn't make more than $60 a month and that he probably has to ask his patients to help him get new tires for his car or to buy his children some new shoes. That is very embarrassing because it humiliates the professional and it creates a pattern of corruption, bribery and mechanisms that end up benefiting patients that are more able to give gifts. On the other hand, the hospital's infrastructure is pitiful. 
Many of these hospitals are big. They have big halls. They once enjoyed some glory, maybe with the Soviet subsidy. In the middle of that, you find these rudimentary challenges, such as the restrooms not having running water, the light switches are torn off the walls, there's no air conditioning, and each family that has a relative that is a patient here has to bring their own fan. So these amount to major reasons why Cuban doctors might be happy to be sent overseas to work, because in Cuba they earn very little, and they work often in pretty bad circumstances. Mark Keller says that Cuba has been sending medical missions overseas since the 1960s. It's something that began in the Cold War era, and it was a way for Cuba to display political solidarity, to make a genuine humanitarian contribution, and obviously to win itself some positive PR. And it's worth noting that Cuban doctors have gone on to some of the most tough public health contexts on record and sometimes really made a difference. In 2014, Cuba sent more doctors than any other country to West Africa to fight Ebola. Cuban doctors were praised for their role in treating Chernobyl victims and doctors dispatched to the Caribbean after hurricanes in the late 90s had a significant impact on improving maternal mortality rates there. But it seems that at a certain point around the turn of the century, these medical missions started serving another vital purpose for Cuba too, bringing in money for the government. So with Venezuela, for instance, the Cuban state struck a deal. You give us aid and cheap oil, we send you doctors. I would say since around 2000, though, because Cuba went through an extremely steep recession, depression in the 90s after the collapse of the Soviet Union and the subsidies that they were receiving. So they were looking for new ways to make income. And around 2000, the big deal that I mentioned earlier with Venezuela, selling medical services to Venezuela in exchange for payment in cash and subsidized oil took off. Cuba has extended this model to a number of countries throughout the world uh, and sort of sells medical services. Brazil was a big market for a while until they pulled their staff out of there. number of Latin American countries, countries in the Middle East, and a few African countries as well. The Cuban government tends to keep the deals it makes with other countries regarding its doctors very hush-hush. But Mark says it's likely that some nations pay cash for the medical services and others reach a different kind of agreement. Yes, so there is a lot of payment in kind. Cuba has this deal with the Paris Club, which is a collection of mostly Western European countries plus Australia and Japan that they owe quite a bit of debt to and have been struggling to repay in the context of the current economic crisis that they were facing even before COVID. So perhaps Italy agreed to suspend some debt repayments in exchange for Cuba sending doctors. And as I said, Cuba is quite oil hungry. So, you know, when they send doctors to countries like Angola, it's quite possible that Angola is paying them with oil instead of with cash. So let's come back to South Africa. In late April, the presidency announces that the South African government has requested medical assistance from Cuba. On 27th April, the 217 Cuban healthcare workers arrive in South Africa. Here's something you need to know. It's probably not too much exaggeration to say that there has been a wall of silence about the details of the arrangement between the Cuban and South African governments that has seen these doctors arrive here. We asked two senior health department officials if they'd talk to us about it, got no response. We asked the Cuban ambassador to South Africa, Rodolfo Verson, if he would talk to us about it. And we were told the embassy would not be discussing the matter further. When I initially sent questions to the Cuban embassy about the doctors, they sent me back a statement saying, the Cuban government pays the full salary of all our doctors while they are assisting other countries. The host countries have assumed the transportation, accommodation, food and basic means for the doctors, 
the minimum necessary in order to contribute to the sustainability of our healthcare services, unquote. If true, that doesn't explain a document doing the rounds, which seems to show the breakdown of expenses for the Cuban doctors in South Africa. It totals just under 500 million rand, and it suggests that the doctors are receiving a monthly food and accommodation stipend of 50,000 rand each, on top of a monthly salary of over 130,000 rand each. That document, which seems to be a budget intended for Treasury, has not been confirmed as authentic by government. But neither has anyone said it is not accurate, which is pretty revealing. In fact, a Department of Health spokesperson told News24, it's not fair that anyone should focus on the price tag over the need to save lives. Maybe not. But the point is that South Africa is also going through an economic crisis. And I asked Mark Keller if it was plausible that Cuba was sending the doctors to South Africa for free. In other words, not intending them to be paid any salary while they were here. Mark said it's highly unlikely because South Africa is neither poor enough nor badly hit by COVID-19 enough. Mark explained how the payment system generally works between Cuba and the countries receiving its doctors. So it's not exactly transparent, but from what I understand, it is a bit of a sliding scale. So Cuba sort of assesses a country's ability to pay. In Brazil, I believe they were receiving around $3,000 a month per doctor, US dollars per month. Whereas in Qatar, which is another place where there's around 400 Cuban doctors, I understand it's like $55,000 a year. So richer countries get charged more than poorer countries based on Cuba's perception of their ability to pay for it. If those figures are correct, by the way, and if the apparent treasury document is correct, it means that South Africa is paying more for Cuban doctors than Qatar, which is the richest country in the world. Now, you may be wondering how the Cuban state ends up getting paid for the work of Cuban doctors if the doctors themselves are receiving a salary. As I said, in South Africa, that salary is allegedly about 1.5 million rand each for 12 months' work. It's because most of that salary goes straight to the Cuban government. And I should mention also that of that money, Cuban doctors only receive a percentage of it. So if they're being paid $3,000 a month in Brazil, they were probably only receiving around $900 or $1,000. The Cuban state was keeping the rest. This is one of the aspects that has made these Cuban medical missions controversial, that they seem to amount to a kind of indentured labor for the doctors involved. You could perhaps, if you wanted to be harsh, call it a form of human trafficking since the Cuban government keeps such a large percentage of their wages. But from the eyes of the Cuban government, this is human capital that they have created. I mean, education is free of cost in Cuba, so they are in a way protecting their investment. And lending medical services for free is part of this also. And the money is, they say, used to support Cuba's domestic medical system. So certainly there are moral questions around it, but there is this part of it that my world migration to countries where you might get paid more is a reality. And it is basically, in the end, used for not necessarily nefarious purposes. So here's the half a billion rand question for me. Why would South Africa, in dire economic straits itself, hire Cuban medical professionals at exorbitant expense at a time when they might not even be needed? Part of it probably comes down to history. South Africa and Cuba have been sharing medical resources for over two decades. And the warm relationship between the ANC and Cuba stretches back much further, Cuba having sent soldiers to join the fight against the apartheid military in Angola. There's probably also ideological considerations. A lot of the governments that have agreed to lease Cuban medical services are more left-leaning. Bolivia, until the change of government last year, Venezuela, 
Angola. So perhaps there are some ideological considerations in South Africa as well. But is that a good enough reason? Here's a complicating factor. While the South African government flies in 217 Cuban healthcare workers to help fight COVID-19, there are hundreds of South African doctors who are desperate for the chance to practice in this country and denied the chance to do so. I'm Advocate Governor. I head the legal desk of uh, SAFMA. SAFMA being the South African Internationally Trained Health Professionals Association, which was constituted in 2018 to address the grievances and challenges faced by South Africans who obtained their medical qualifications at global universities recognized by the WHO and listed in the World Directory of Medical Schools. Renee Govender assists South Africans who received medical degrees outside of the country, either because they were offered scholarships to particular overseas universities or because they couldn't find places at local medical schools and had to obtain training elsewhere. China, Romania, Poland, Ukraine. We have members from Kenya. Mauritius is the other big one. These medical graduates want to practice in South Africa, but for years have been fighting an uphill battle in getting the necessary registration from the Health Professions Council of South Africa, the HPCSA, which requires would-be health professionals to write a board exam. We've had instances where... Members have been trying to write the board exam for seven, eight years now. We've had instances where documents were lost. We've had instances where, for some reason or the other, members who passed the USA board exam have consistently failed in South Africa. Members who passed the UK board exam have failed the South African board exams. So it begs the question, what is going on with HPCSA? Because your USA board exam is the gold standard in terms of board exams anywhere in the world. And if somebody passes at that level, one would expect that we would pass the South African board exam itself, which is a lot less onerous on members. The HPCSA, I should say, didn't respond to our list of questions. When SAFPA realized that not only had these Cuban-trained doctors been welcomed with open arms into the South African health system, but that they'd also managed to obtain HPCSA registration seemingly within a matter of days or weeks at the most, they were pretty angry. All they're asking for is, can we come back home and practice because we don't have sufficient doctors? But our government then decides to employ 217 Cuban doctors at a cost of almost half a billion, while these doctors sit at home unemployed. It's highly likely that the Cuban doctors will end up playing a useful role in treating COVID-19 in South Africa. But the South African government still has pressing questions to answer about the price tag of the mission, about whether the expertise offered by the Cubans could truly not be replicated locally at a lower cost, and ultimately whether the real beneficiary of the deployment is South Africa or perhaps the cash-strapped Cuban state. Don't Shoot the Messenger is a podcast brought to you by The Daily Maverick. This episode was produced by Haji Mohammed Dauji, with sound engineering, editing and support by Bernard Kotzer, Tevya Turok-Shapiro and Catherine Kotzer. You can listen to Don't Shoot the Messenger on The Daily Maverick's website, Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. 
For more, subscribe to the Daily Mavericks newsletters and follow us on Twitter and Instagram.